We're going to open back up to the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew. And depending on how quickly we move, see if we can close out the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew. It may take a couple hours, but it'll be okay. We can, we can manage. We got it. Last time when we looked at this chapter last week, we were looking at the um, discussions that were had between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jesus um, in verses 15 through uh, 33. We talked about the implications in the future church for the secular religious kind of coexistence that went on when they were talking about the Pharisees and the Herodians asking about taxes. We talked about how we are not anarchists and that we do not reject civil government or civil authority, but that that is actually here condoned by Jesus. And then later in the book of Romans and other places in the writings and the epistles, we find that that is obviously upheld as well, that, you know, the civil government is actually instituted and put in place by God and that it's a thing that we are to respect. Now, again, Christ also gives us the kind of two coexisting um, situations, one of them being the things that are Caesar's or the things that are secular. And what he says is that you are to render the secular things to the secular. So you pay your taxes because those are civil governmental institutions and you do render those things to them. But equally, or I should actually say probably unequally, um, and definitely more important is that we are in the same requirement to render to God the things that are God's. Um, that render to Caesar what is Caesar's is obviously taken first, and they use that, and even as we said, non-Christians will use that phrase. But, you know, how often do we put a big exclamation point on render to God the things that are God's? And we made that point last week, that that is an, I would say, unequally weighted commandment, that the rendering the things that are God's is vastly more important than rendering the things that are Caesar's. Yet somehow we are more obligated and feel more uh, of a necessity to render taxes on on April 15th than we do service to God on a daily basis. And so um, that's one of the things we brought out last week. We then continued on looking at the conflict with the Sadducees that looked at the issue of the resurrection. And we talked about how this is the kind of third occurrence in the Bible where the veil is lifted a little bit on what the resurrection and eternal life actually looks like. Um, the first being with Job, he made the statement that I will see my Redeemer in my body, okay? Um, that's an implication that Job way back when knew of a bodily resurrection and Job understanding that Job was going to see his Redeemer um, even before a Redeemer was there. So, um, But that was Job's interpretation of that. And then we fast forward to the Mount of Transfiguration and we talked about how Peter and and Jesus were standing there on the mountain and Peter was able to recognize Elijah and Moses bodily, physically represented there in their entirety, not in some kind of unknowable ethereal sense, but in an actual literal tangible sense. And they're having a conversation with Jesus in a tangible way, um, which produces the image of a bodily, physical, living kind of thing going on. In eternal life, not some kind of floating orbs. And of course, in his argument that he argues with the Sadducees, he says, God himself has told y'all way back when, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of the living, not the dead. Meaning that God is still God, 
but also that Abraham's still Abraham. You know, that, you know, Abraham is still alive in another capacity, but still living, still existing as Abraham, not just as the blob formerly known as Abraham, but as actual Abraham, living as Abraham, just in a perfected, glorious state. And so, you know, yeah, so that's the, that's the beautiful picture you get out of that argument he has with the Sadducees. Is he's giving us a picture of what the eternal life in heaven, in the new heavens, and the new earth, whatever it may be at whatever time, that's, that's what we're seeing. We are we. We are us. Um, without some of the human attachments like marriage, like he describes there, but still us. Okay? And still very much knowing who each other are. Um, if... Peter can identify Moses, I'm sure I will be able to identify Emily, okay, um, in that sense. So, I mean, that's, that's what we get in that picture. So it's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. Now, again, in heaven, though, Emily can, you know, rejoice that she's not going to have to be bound to me. Um, but, you know, but that's the picture we get of the resurrection and the glory of eternity that we see there. Um, and so that's an argument that we often come to with the Sadducees, but... You know, dig a little deeper, grab the bigger picture that's there. I mean, that's a glorious picture that we have, the glorious picture of the resurrection that puts us shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers of the kingdom, and we know them. <laughs> that's the beautiful thing. We know them. We know them and we rejoice with them, okay, as created beings. The angels know each other. And they rejoice as created beings, created for that purpose. We were created for a purpose too, and in our resurrected status, we will be the same. So, then he continues on, and in this next section of Scripture, 34 through 40, we have this. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And there's that phrase again that we talked about from our study in Deuteronomy. Remember, the law and the prophets is a phrase of Jewish leadership. Okay? It's not talking about the law in some kind of extant version and the prophets as in Hosea, Micah. and some, It's the ruling body of Israel was collectively referred to as the law and the prophets. They worked together to rule Israel. Okay? The law was there. The prophets were there to give divine inspiration on the law. And then you also had the priests that were there also as a governing body within the law. And that's those two together made up the governing bodies in addition to the judges and then the kings and so forth. But that was the ruling body of Israel up until the kingdom came with Jesus. So you have that phrase, though. The law and the prophets are hung up, the leadership of Israel, in that sense is hung up with this. These are the commandments that God himself here has set forth as being the greatest. And they're almost tied together. He doesn't separate them. That's why he says the second is like to the first. It's not saying that it's like it as in they're similar. It's saying it's like it as in they are joined. They are together. 
like identical twins. Okay? So there's a view of this where he puts them together and says, these two are it. This is what's always been stated. As we've gone through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, what are the commandments we see? Obey me, love me, follow my commandments, and love one another. Love your neighbor, love the stranger, love the refugee, love those people. You are to exhibit your love for me through your love of other people. You're created to be that way. We've talked in depth about Deuteronomy, how woven into their social fabric was the commandments of God to be a loving people to people who don't necessarily deserve your love. Loving people who don't, you don't know them sometimes. They're refugees. They're strangers in your land. They're poor people who are taking food out of your gardens. And God said, yeah, and I want you to do that on purpose. In fact, leave it there for them. Your whole, your whole framework for your society was built into that. In Deuteronomy, we've marveled how that set them apart drastically from all these other cultures. Well, guess what? God is still preaching that same thing. He's still commanding that same commandment. He's still ingrained in us the same principle. Okay? So here he gives them that as an argument. These are the greatest commandments. Now, what he does here, you see the Pharisees, they've already been put to task once. Christ, you know, corrected them with the tax question and kind of, you know, pushed them out uh, and, and set them straight, talking about how they were trying to tempt Christ to get him to try and, you know, catch him in something. And he calls them out. He's like, why are you trying to tempt me, you bunch of hypocrites? And he hits them with the render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but what he really hits them with is, and you should be rendering to God what is God's. And that's really where they were failing. Okay, They were rendering a lot of stuff that was God, but they were really rendering it to themselves for their own self-righteous desires. Okay, And he's saying, you need to be giving to God what's God's. You need to be actually giving your sacrifices to God in honor and praise and worship of God like you are commanded to. But instead, you are taking the name of the Lord in vain. You have taken it on you that you are a follower of Jehovah and a priest of Jehovah and all these things. But you're not. You're not doing what he commanded you to do. You're not honoring him like he commanded you to honor him. So you've taken his name in vain and attributed it to yourself. So here, though, he says, I want to define what the creator of the universe says is important. That's what is so, I mean, for two years we've been going through this trying to piece out what Christ taught and talking about how important that is because it's what frames us. That if we profess to be Christians, if we are taking the Lord's name, we need to be doing what Jesus told us to do so that we are adequately and accurately representing what Christ actually taught. Because there are a lot of people in this world, whether innocently or maliciously, have taken the Lord's name and are not doing what Christ told them to do. Or they are doing some of it, but then other things they're like, well, but I'm just not good at that, so I'm just not going to, I'm just going to ignore it. Or they're outright doing things in ignorant understanding, I guess you could say, of what Christ actually taught. 
somehow they're kind of doing like the lawyer. They're trying to play a game about who my neighbor is so I can get around actually doing what God told me to do. Or like the Pharisees who want to make the commandments of God of none effect because they'll take it and they'll say, oh, but I was going to honor my mother and father with this, but oh, no, I'm going to give it to the temple and said, see, look, I'm righteous, I'm holy. Look at what I'm doing. I'm still righteous, but I'm technically breaking the law. But I'm still righteous because I did it for a good cause. It was a good reason. So obviously when we look at this, we have always, as you look at these commandments, we sometimes view them as just this like simplification factor. You know, Christ was just simplifying because I mean, 10 commandments, how hard it is to keep 10. I'm just going to narrow it down to two and that'll make it so much easier for you. But there is much, much more into what he is teaching here. There's much more than what is just a perceived simplification. He wasn't trying to take a complex law and make it easier for them to keep. He was trying to draw out what the true intention of the law has always been. Okay, These kind of phrases here where he says this, it's the same thing that's like said in Micah. Where he would say, look guys, I don't care a thing about your sacrifices. I have always desired mercy and not sacrifice. And I have desired knowledge of me and not burnt offerings. And you say, well, that's kind of conflicting, God, because you kind of told us to do all these sacrifices and burnt offerings. And what God is saying is, yeah, but the whole time it wasn't for the end game of just sacrifice. You think I need a bunch of dead animals on my doorstep? Like, you think that's what pleases me? Like, somehow I have some kind of masochistic thing that I need to see destruction to be happy? It's like, no, all of these things were for a purpose of pushing you out of your unorganized pagan chaos and bringing order and structure into your life surrounded around me and around these simplistic, simple desires of mercy, compassion, and a greater knowledge, understanding, and relationship with me. I mean, that's what it all was. That's what he says. That's why he says, I desired you to know me more, not just do a bunch of things. I desired you to be a more compassionate, merciful people because of everything that I've written into the law that I've given you. It wasn't just for a religious exercise so you can feel better about yourself. It was to make you better people to be better with other people. That's why you were set up this way. I think that's what I'm saying. I think we can see that as we have gone through Deuteronomy in particular, you can see how it was all set up and these things were put in place. And it's like, man, that seems so weird and contrary. But then when we started looking at it, we're like, no, God is actually putting like some breaks in human nature in these places. He's actually correcting what would have been just the natural course of human events in some of these things. God has written into it some very protective, human dignifying things. And saying, God did that with Israel to be an example, to set them apart in that way. But the first commandment that we look at, this is what we talked about again. And we keep going back to Deuteronomy, but that's how these intersect like this. So, I mean, the very first thing he said, these Pharisees and all the Jews hearing would have understood it to be true. Which was the Shema, which we talked about from Deuteronomy 6. There was a thing in one of the commentaries that talked about like a truly pious Jew would recite the Shema twice a day. That's how you knew you were legit. Okay, You were legit on the righteous Jew scale if you recited the Shema twice a day. That means you were a really pious person. Okay, 
So here you have him giving the Shema, okay? Which was from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Remember, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. But I want us to catch what the Hebrew words that are used here, because they are different from the Greek ones that were used in Matthew. So he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Might. Okay. Here you have love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the reason that, at least I think, and I could be proven very easily wrong with this, but the reason that I think that there is a mind included in this, okay, you have a Greek-Roman world with Western philosophy, okay, they did not attribute the mind with the heart like the Hebrew word means, okay? So the heart was more of a passionate... You know, that's where your feelings were. But the mind was the rational, platonic thought thing, okay? That's where you went through the Socratic method and you rationalized everything. And that's where the will and the purpose kind of came from, all right? But in the Hebrew, there was no mind consideration like that. The heart was actually the seat of not only emotions, but also of your mind, of your thought, um, and that's why you will see in the Proverbs and the Psalms things being mulled in the heart or thought over in the heart. Or it's the heart that is giving you wrong thoughts that will cause you to go astray. That's where the heart was kind of this thing. It wasn't in a passion and emotional sense just. It was also like a rational thing. It was like where you thought from. Okay, And that's why your actions came from it. That's why the mouth spoke from what the heart had within it, okay? Whereas we consider the mind to be the thing where our mouth speaks. We think a bunch of stupid stuff and then we say it, okay? We don't think it's in our heart. We think it's in our mind, right? Because we have a Western kind of philosophical mo- uh, m- uh, idea of that. But so like looking at those words individually, number one, hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, that's the word, Shema, we talked about that, which implied not only auditory reception, but obedience, okay? Hear and obey, Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. So the Hebrew word for heart is labab, which was the inner man, the mind, the will, and the heart. Okay, so those were all kind of coalesced in this one location in the heart. So the inner man which gives you, it's the thing that gives you conscious thought, but also the thing that gives you a purposeful will. Okay, so it starts in here. This is where you're mulling it over, thinking about it, and then putting it into purposeful action. Is in your heart, in your labab. Okay, the soul is the nefesh, which is the living being, as you will hear like from... Noah's days or whatever, that there were eight souls that were saved, okay, in that way. So you have the living being, but it wasn't just a living, existing creation, okay? It also included yourself for who you are, what makes you, you, instead of me, me, okay? That my soul was my identity, my my little mix-up of genetic code or whatever, you know, that made me who I am with my quirks and my desires, with my appetites and my emotions and my passions, okay? So it made me who I am. I am a product of my passions and my desires and my appetites and, and all those things. So it's the living being. It's your life. It's your existence, okay? But then might is probably, out of all these, my, my like, most favorite of these words, okay? That was the Hebrew word meod, which means muchness, that's my favorite word, muchness. I love that word. It's so incredibly unique and awesome, okay? Muchness, force, abundance, or exceedingly. 
So your muchness is the the entity, the fullness, the ability, the power, everything that when you're doing this, you're giving it your all. You're putting your muchness into this, okay? So it's your power, your impetus, your drive, okay? So when he says that you're to love God with your heart, that is not only just a passionate thing, but it is also a conscious will thing. It's a passionate conscious will, Okay, to love God. And then you're loving him with your soul, all of your soul, which means all of your identity and who you are and what makes up you and all of your desires and all of your appetites and all your passions go into this heart passion decision to do this. All right. And then your might. You're not just to half heartedly do it. You do it with all of your muchness. You put a lot of muchness into this. So your drive, your ability, everything, all of it goes into this. So it's all of your heart. So all of my will and desire and passion, all of my being identity and desires and, and all of it with all of it, with all the muchness that I can manage to put in there. Okay. Do you see how that makes a lot more impact than mind? Now, we can go to mind and we can say, yes, all of my thoughts, all of my, you know, and Paul will talk about taking captive all of my thoughts. But this is what God said to Israel. This lays out the three person thing within you that were to apply to this. So this is not half hearted. This is not passive. There is very much active. You can't give muchness and not be active, okay? Muchness implies activity, okay? And this kind of, you know, we were talking about this with the... With the parables, when we were doing these parables in 21 and 22, we were tying them to what Paul then subsequently wrote to the church at Rome. Because again, you're having this tie-in there, okay? As he is talking to these Israelites, there is a tie-in in the letter to the church at Rome that's addressing what is ultimately has and going to happen to the Israelites, okay? Um, and, and so we went through all that, but we tried to tie to 9, 10, and 11, okay, of Romans chapter 9, 10, 11. Well, within that, you see Paul in one of his statements, kind of alluding again to this kind of order of events of how things kind of cascade, okay? So when you look in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he'll say that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. So you see the kind of order of events. Where did it begin? It began in the heart, With the heart, with a conscious desire and will, you believed under righteousness. And then from that belief and that act, that internal thing, you put your muchness into it in an external action with confession. And he says those two are there together. Okay. It's just like trying to hold a stick of dynamite under a paper hat. It just, it's not going to not come out. Okay. You got it within you. You got this thing within you. When it comes out, it comes out in an active way. Okay. And that's kind of what we have talked about here with this internal purposeful. If, if my heart is in this, if my heart has been made willing, if my heart has been kind of molded and fashioned into this new thing that God created me to be, then it's going to infect every aspect of my being. We talk about like how individuals have different appetites and passions and desires and gifts, okay? 
that God gifts individuals differently. He gave tongues to some and prophecy to some, healings to some, ministrations to some. He did all these things in the church like we've talked about before. And we say, well, why did he do that? Because you were individual, you were individual, you were individual. He created you with a soul that's different than my soul, with desires and passions that are different than my soul, and for capacities that are different. And he gifted me to do my work that he has given me to do based on my characteristics that he gave me. So my whole soul has been made into the thing that he has created it to, and he's gifted me in a way to be used in compatibility with that, with that soul, okay? So that now all of my soul and all of my giftings are doing something, okay? Now, that obviously is on a spectrum, all right? I'm going to have really good days and a lot of really bad days. All right, as far as how much, how much I'm using my gifts and how much my soul and my appetites and my desires are moving in the direction they're supposed to be. All right, but if my soul's been made new, it's got something, okay? There's something there. If my activities are going to reflect that. I mean, Paul would even argue that there was Gentiles who were doing this kind of stuff and they didn't have any kind of knowledge about it. They were doing it anyway because their soul has been changed and affected by it, Okay. So when you look at how we've been made into this new thing, it's an active thing. It's not passive. We don't sit back and go, oh, well, because we're saved, then we don't do anything. There, we, it, we can't help it in some cases because we've been made new. We have new desires. So we're, we're moving. It's active. We're putting muchness into this. There's desire that's undergirding it in our hearts, in our soul. And in our might to do this. So how do we do this? Because I mean this right here. This is one of the sentinel moments in our existence as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay. We have done two years to get to really this chapter, this verse. Okay. To prove and to confirm for ourselves that it is these things that Christ has commanded us to do. And if we're not doing them, then we need to quit saying we're following Christ. Because we aren't. You can go to the church, you can go to whatever, you can carry a Bible around, you can have a Jesus fish on your car. It doesn't matter if you're not doing what Jesus said, then we ain't doing what Jesus said and we're not Christians, okay? We're not following him. To be a Christian, you have to actually follow and do what he says. So here when he says you have to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, that's not an option. That's not like, oh, well, if I want to feel better about myself then I can do that. Or if I want to be an A-list Christian, then I'll choose to do that. The really good Christians are the ones that do that. But all of us are mediocre Christians. We just kind of do kind of... No, there's, there's no, as we've said before, there's no sitting on the fence and going from one side to the other. There's no half-heartedness with this. It's all of our might, all of our soul, all of our heart. It's fully committed or not committed at all. I mean, that's just, that's just what he gives us in stark contrast over and over again. He doesn't say take up your cross and continue to live your life like you want to. He said, no, you got to lose your life, actually. You got to lose it all. You got to give it all up. And then you can take up your cross and then you can follow me. If you're going to give your life to me, you actually have to give your life to me. You can't give your life to me and somebody else. You can't give your life to me and mammon. You can't serve me and money. You can't serve me and your own selfish desires and affections. It's all me or none of me. That's just how this works. So when he's sitting here and talking about our essential existence, he says, this is it. This is the ground level. But from the ground level, it encompasses every aspect of our our existence. There's nothing that is excluded in this. When we listed through those three parts, was there any part of us that we could say, okay, but this one I can pigeonhole to the side and keep that for myself. Jesus doesn't get this part. 
No, it's all included. It's all in there. Everything about us is in there. And this is how we we look across the spectrum. And as we've kind of talked about the the... I guess the removal of the divide between what we commonly refer to as the Old and the New Testament. You know, we've said over and over again, it's just one testimony, okay? It's just one statement. It's one story from Genesis to Revelation. It's the same story that's playing out over thousands of years. It's not that God had a different plan in the Old Testament and changed. I mean, that's not, it's all one story. And what I think is amazing is as, have we, as we have gone back through looking at Israel's life, And how they were formed and what they lived and did and all these things. We go back and we go, oh man, God's been, this stuff that we're reading in the New Testament, Jesus is talking about right now, man. He's been telling that to these people way back when. He's been talking to them about it, you know, some 2,000 years ago. God has always been saying these things. It's not like he came on the scene and Jesus was a socialist and now wanted you to take care of poor people. It's like God's going, oh man, I wrote that in the law. I mean, I wrote that way back. I wrote that at your, your, your inception. Like way back at the beginning, I was telling you these things. So, I mean, like this is not nothing, this is not anything new. He's been going through this the whole time. And as we've looked through the story, we've kind of been going, wow, that sounds really familiar. That sounds like that comes up again, doesn't it? So we see him telling it to him in Deuteronomy. We see Jesus telling it to these Pharisees here in Matthew. We see Paul, when you go and write to the, again, to the church at Rome and the church at Galatia, same words, same phrases, same statement. In Romans chapter 13, in verse 8, he'll say, Owe no man anything, or don't be indebted to any man, in a very much in a natural sense, okay? This goes to kind of the practical things of, you know, you're not supposed to sign on to a contract with somebody, or, you know, a lot of stuff that, you know, is a very kind of just good practical things that you should do, okay? He says this, though, Owe no man anything, so don't be indebted to them on anything except to love them. Owe no man anything but to love one another. Owe no man anything but owe him love. For he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, again, there's a lot of things that Paul says that you go, man, you just went over at like 50,000 feet and I did not catch a bit of it. That is completely simplified right here. You can't get any simpler than that. That is a simple rhetorical argument that is impossible to mess up. What's incredibly fascinating to me, what is incredibly fascinating to me about this is, number one, did you notice the language he gave about loving one another? Did he give an option in it? Did he make it sound like it was for A-list Christians or because you wanted to feel better about yourself as a Christian, you should do this, but really mediocre Christians don't have to? No, he said, actually, you are to indebt yourself to your neighbor in love. You owe them love. He said, you're not to owe them anything else. You are to owe them love. So loving your neighbor is owed to your neighbor. 
Okay, and this ties back in my mind to what he did with the with your fields in the in 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 Israel's day. He said, "You're not to glean your fields. Why? Because that leftover produce is owed to the poor, to the needy." To the fatherless, to the widows. I am purposefully setting it up that that portion is going to be owed them that they can come through and glean your fields and be fed. God set it up that way. He said, I want it done this way. This is how it will be done. There will be no exceptions to this. And if you glean your field, I'm going to punish you for it. Because I have set up your society to be framed in this way that they will have provision based on your fields that you worked. Because you're not going to take all of it. You're going to leave the gleanings for the people to come through. I mean, that was owed them in that sense. You say, well, why do they deserve it? Well, because God said so. Go argue with him if you want to. Take it up with him. I tell you what, when you get to the gates, you can knock on him and ask him to give you an explanation why he let a bunch of freeloaders come in and take your garden. But you can take that up with him. I'm not going to. Okay. So this is where... This is where this kind of idea of an obligation in this. I really do want us to understand it as that. It is not an option. This is not something he says is just for the super Christian. He says, no, this is for the Christian. This is actually what it means to be a Christian. It's not an optional thing for Christians like some kind of elective class. He says, no, this is actually... The framework, this is what your new soul has been wired to do. This is how you have been recreated for this purpose. I mean, that's what Ephesians 2 has told us. We have been recreated as Christ's workmanship for the purpose of doing good works. So we have been made for this. And my common, probably overused example of that is that a fork is not made to eat soup with, right? So when you're trying to eat soup with a fork, it doesn't work out that well. What was made for that purpose? A spoon. And when you eat it with a spoon, man, it works really good, doesn't it? It's because the spoon's doing what the spoon was made to do, okay? And so in our same way, we have been made to do these things. This is what, so when it's an obligation, when we look at it as an obligation or being owed, it's not something like, oh, this is just out of the normal. I can't believe you would require this of us, God, because we have been wired for this. This is what he created us for. Just like he created in the social fabric of Israel, prescriptions for the provision of people. And for the, that's, it's the same thing. He's wired it within us. But secondly, is that he hints at the keeping of the commandments. You know, there's this kind of philosophy going all the way back to like, it's probably before then, it always is. You know, everything kind of starts, it seems, around the 15, 16, and 1700s. But in all honesty, it's been going all the way before then. It's been going all the way after then. I do find it really funny that people who don't want to study history will like have arguments today and feel like it's some brand new argument. Like, brother, they've been people arguing about that stuff for like 5,000 years, all right? You just, you, you hadn't even got it. I mean, you still got Adam and Eve arguing from the garden. I mean, we still have arguments going on, all right? Same arguments, different day of the week. There ain't nothing new under the sun. It's the same argument, okay? So you go back, though, to around the 1500s, and there was a group called the Antinomians who they had this idea of, well, we're all saved by grace through faith. Doesn't matter what you do. You don't have to keep the commandments. That's all legalism. You just stay away from the commandments. It's just about living in grace. But what I find funny is, is that Paul is kind of talking about keeping the commandments here. He says, you know how you keep the commandments? You love your neighbor. Jesus 
was implying that we should keep these commandments. The commandments of loving God and loving our neighbor. So obviously that hasn't completely gone away. We don't rock in some kind of cradle of grace and say, oh, there's just nothing for us to do. No, Jesus said, you need to be keeping my commandments. These are the great, these are the ones that I myself, God creator of the universe, have said are essential to your existence. Paul carries it on. He's talking to Romans, a largely Gentile church, about keeping commandments. Why would you even do that, Paul? Why wouldn't you just look at him and say, hey, man, it's all about Christian liberty. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You don't have to keep commandments. See, that's all legalism. Don't worry about that. Just live in this awesome state of whatever. He obviously implied that there's obligations we have. There's things God commanded us to do, and we're supposed to do it because God commanded us to do it. So it's not something that we just move away from that we claim some kind of we don't have anything we're obligated to do no god has told us these are the things that you as my created beings will do because this is what i've created you to do and these are the parameters i have set for you and these are the commandments i have commanded you this is what you're created for this is why i have you here we learned that very all the way back at the beginning when we looked in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That is a purposeful creative statement that says, I have created you as, as the salt. I have created you as the light. You are commanded to shine. You are commanded to salt. This is what you've been created for. This is the commandment you have been given with it. And this is what you're supposed to do. Because I've created you to be these things in this world for a purpose. He born us again in this world for a purpose. And it's not just so we can skip over this world and land in heaven one day. It's because in this world we have work to do. In this world we've been created for a purpose. And so he tells us that we are to love him with everything and to love our neighbors. And those are joined together and they're not mutually exclusive. So then how do we do this? How do we put this into action? How do we, and again, continuing with kind of what we were just talking about, you know, it almost comes full circle. I I love it too. It's so, you know, a circle is pretty simple, right? It's not complex. Just a little thing, you know, there's... Very easy to comprehend. It's not like a three-dimensional sphere. It's not like trying to draw a cube. It's not like a tetrahedron. It's just a circle. I mean, that's pretty basic. Starting off in kindergarten, you can get that one down. Okay? So think in the circularness of this argument. Okay? So people would ask then, all right, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my might. How do I do that? What are the checkbox things... Then I'm to do to show that I'm loving God. Is that just saying that I love him? Well, I think every married person would say that just saying it isn't good enough, is it? Right? Now, you got to show me sometime. That's why you buy flowers. That's why you buy me chocolate. That's why you take me on vacation. That's why you let me go off and stay somewhere while you keep the kids. Whatever it may be, somehow you show your love by actually showing it, not just saying it. Right? That's an age-old adage. So if we're getting the checklist... So that we can feel really good about ourselves and go, okay, well, I did that today and I did that today and I did that today. And now I can say that I love the Lord. Okay. 
Where's my checklist? Where do I go to? What are the things that I am obligated to do to love the Lord? How do I love the Lord? What does that look like? Well, Jesus gives us the answer, didn't he? Jesus answers the question. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 21, Jesus tells his disciples, If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, that blows the whole antinomian argument right out the window. If we're not supposed to keep the commandments because that's legalism, well, Jesus obviously was a very bad legalist, okay? So keep my commandments. That's how you love me. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwells in you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world sees me no more, but you see me, because I live, you shall live also. And that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. And here's the clincher. He that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. So how do we love God? Well, first and foremost, we keep his commandments. That's easy enough, right? That's not hard. That's not, that's not complicated. There's not keep his commandments plus a 25-step initiation program with a lot of religious mumbo-jumbo. It's just keep his commandments. What are his commandments? <laughs> love me with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your, love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you show that you love me? By keeping my commandments. And what are your commandments? That you love me with all your heart, mind, and soul, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I show that I love you? By keeping my commandments. It's a, it's, it's a circle. It's just a continuous circle. We keep his commandments, and his commandments are to love him and to love our neighbors. His commandments also were to love our enemies, which he is including in this neighbor thing, by the way. Okay, He doesn't discriminate that. You have heard it said that that was discriminated. He didn't discriminate that. In the Luke account of this, where he's asked this question before at another time, in Luke's account of this, he follows this up with the parable of the Good Samaritan, where you have an enemy loving an enemy, okay? Where you have a Samaritan who is the enemy of the Jews showing what true love of your neighbor is to his enemy, the Jew. So you have this picture played out here where the whole loving your neighbor thing and loving your enemy is not two separate things are one and the same. Your enemy is your neighbor. And you're to love him just like you would your neighbor that you really like. But as we said, those, would go, those go hand in hand with the first. Love your Lord with all your heart, all your might, and all your soul. So those together are the commandments we're commanded to keep. Those together are the things Jesus says that if you keep these, you will love me. And you who keep these love me. And again, it's not, we've talked about this before, that phrase, because I've always had the, the issue with it in some ways that, you know, people will sometimes take that and, and they will checklist that. Okay. Okay. So all I got to do is keep the commandments. So as long as I don't lie and as long as I don't steal and as long as I don't kill anybody today, well then boom, I can say I love the Lord. Checklist mentality. That is a legalistic mentality. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. 
And Jesus on more than one occasion said, you don't love me, let alone know me. And in chapter 23 that we're going to get it to, we're going to see a lot of that. The difference between what Christ is calling us to hear is, and, and the self-righteous, religious, pharisaical kind of exercise of this is that this loving your God and keeping his commandments that Christ is describing here is what we were just talking about with all of your mind, all of your heart, soul, and might. It is the things that God has worked in us. It is the soul change that God has given us. It is the heart change that God has given us. And our ability to put our muchness into that. Okay? That is the difference that when I am keeping His commandments based off of that, then we know it's love of God that is doing that. Okay? It's a difference. That's what Paul in in the Roman letter was talking about where he says there were those who did the commandments who kept the law by faith and did it because they had faith in God and they trusted in God and they loved God. And and there was those who did it out of a sheer self-righteous desire. There's a difference there and it looks different too. The difference in this is that our new being in love with God will manifest that in keeping his commandments in a way that you can see are genuine and pure and true, who have true love for their neighbor, who care about people, who show compassion, who are merciful in ways that are beyond this world's comprehension, that set them apart and make them look different. Like we're called to be, just like Israel was made to be. So it's a different, a, a different place of origin that this is coming from. So we're still getting away from the legalistic side of things. It's not just checking off a box and saying, okay, well today, I'm not really sure if I love the Lord or not, but you know what, I'm going to do some things here that He commanded, and that way I can show... No, that's not what He's talking about. He's talking about a desire that was is within our hearts that is embodying itself throughout our soul and that we are putting our muchness into. He closes this chapter with the Pharisees again asking a question saying what well actually Jesus asking them a question saying what think ye of Christ whose son is he and they said to him the son of David and he said to them how then doth David in the spirit or by spiritual inspiration call him Lord saying the Lord said unto my Lord sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him to a word. Neither did any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Now that would sound like a very profound statement. We all, we know there's only two more days really that we're getting to here anyway. But here he does give the, the implication in this. Okay. You say, why are we closing this? Well, because I wanted to get to chapter 23. But number two. What Jesus has done here, he's now retorted back to them. They have been pounding him with questions. Now he's going to trip them up with a question. Okay? The question he asks, though, seems a little weird, but it is actually an affirmation of his godness and his authority even over David. Okay? And so what he does here is he references back to the psalmist, When David writes a psalm regarding Jesus, the Messiah, 
who God, Yahweh, is talking to. And we see this kind of in the same thing with Daniel, that the Ancient of Days was sitting there and the Lamb came to the Ancient of Days, okay? Here you have the Lord, Yahweh, sitting, saying, Lord, Messiah, Adonai, it's Lord, Yahweh, Lord, Adonai, here, sit here till I make all your enemies your footstool. He's speaking to the Messiah, saying, I'm going to make all your enemies your footstool. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Okay, so that's kind of the layout here. And he says, if David was inspired of the word to write, um, inspired of the spirit to write the word about the Messiah and called the Messiah Lord. Yet we know the Messiah is called also the son of David, as we have seen here. He was to come up in that that lineage of David, that Davidic king line, the Judean king line. He was to come up in that. Okay. Yet he says, But if he's his son, why would he call him Lord? Now, he's not arguing that the Davidic line thing isn't true. What he's making the point of is that you Pharisees would look at the Messiah as an equal. Because he's a Davidic line. Well, the king was technically not over a prophet. Nathan could come up and, you know, smack David in the face and say, Hey, I'm just telling you, the Lord's about to strike you down in your family. Okay? There was an on-parness there. You had the Levites and the prophets. They were on par with the judges. They all had to kind of, kind of mingle. Okay? Even the king in that way. Right? So if he was just the son of David, then he's just a natural man. He's just the Messiah. He's just a king. He's no greater than us. We're the hierarchy of Israel at this point. If we come down and say, The Lord thus hath said, we could smack that king around too. So there's one side of it that he's talking to them saying, you think that this Messiah is going to be on par or underneath you. And I'm telling you that David, granddaddy David, called the Messiah Lord, which implies two things. Number one, he is submissive to that Messiah. And number two, that Messiah is obviously on the same equal footing as the other Lord. So Yahweh and Adonai, in that sense, are equals. That means they're equal in authority, power, and the respect that is due them. Now, why is that an interesting closing to this? It's because what Jesus has just done is taken every one of these self-righteous, uppity, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, elders, and chief priests of Israel and slapped every one of them across the face and said, even your man David submitted to me in the spirit. He wrote a psalm about submission to me. Now, what's your problem? You all who would quote the Psalms, where's your submission? Where's your reverence for me? Where's your bowing down and submitting to me as your Lord? Where is your obedience to my commandments? If you loved me, you would keep my commandments. So with us, we have to ask ourselves that question. You know, number one, do we love the Lord? If we love the Lord, we should keep his commandments. If we love the Lord and say we love the Lord, we don't need to take our Lord's name in vain. We need to actually be doing what the Lord has commanded us to do. Part of keeping his commandments is loving our neighbors and our enemies. And we have been going through that over and over and over and over and over again. And if it was good enough for Jesus to go through it a bunch of times, I guess it's okay for us to go through it a bunch of times. Obviously, it's implying the fact that we don't get it every time. But it's important for us to be reminded and more important for us to understand the gravity and the weight of that, of what Christ is commanding us and calling us to submission, obedience, doing what he has created us to do. 
So I think it's an amazing statement, and hopefully we'll get into chapter 23, which should be another fun time. May God bless us.